to the board game community show. I'm your host, Riley Starr. Join me as I get to know folks in this community. They could be designers or streamers, podcasters, YouTubers, publishers, whatever. Really anything with the nerd at the end of its title is welcome here on the board game community show. Show. Welcome back to the Board Game Community Show. Today I'm really excited to have the designer of my favorite game. Listeners of the show know that Spirit Island. And it is our Eric... Is it... Oh, no, I should have asked this before, but is it Royce? Yes, Royce. Royce. Okay, cool. I'm sure you get a lot of different pronunciations of it. Oh, yeah. What's the weirdest you've heard? Possibly, uh, well, Rios is pretty common. The weirdest might be something just completely like uh, like Rusa or something, where there's like an uh, 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 too few vowels in the beginning and too many vowels in the end. <laughs> and I feel like sometime in eighth grade, somebody like turned it into a three syllable thing, and I'm not quite sure exactly how that happened. I don't know. Like it's uh, mostly it just turns into Rus or Rios. Yeah, I think historically on the show I've said Rus mm-hmm. or Rius, something yep. like that. So. Um, yeah, it's in the EU is a German EU, like the EU in Freud. Oi, you know, so that makes that oi noise. Oh, okay. Uh, so yeah. Are you German? Well, like ancestrally. Yeah. yeah, my uh my my last name comes down to me from my dad's side of the family, which is from Germany, uh back, you know, 100, 200 years ago. Yeah. Well, neat. Longer than that, actually. Uh we have a neat family ancestry. Uh and then before Germany, it goes back to other places even further. But uh uh, but Royce is uh, definitely on the German side. Yeah, I know. I love that. I, I love we're going to talk about games and everything, I swear. But uh, mm-hmm. you like I'm a part of your um, you've invited like people of color and indigenous people to come in and like be a part of a forum and be part of your discussion for Spirit Island, uh, which is an approach that people really like that you do. I, I love it. And I've been able to like look through the forums and we won't talk about the specifics in there. Uh, but I love that, that you are looking for those voices, especially while designing a game that's like anti-colonialism, you know? Yeah. It's, uh, been really great to get so much feedback and thoughtful advice. Like I really appreciate it. Yeah. I, yeah, I, I appreciate, I appreciate the effort, right? Like so many games or so many people just like, we'll do a little surface internet stuff, but you actually are having like active conversations with people in the cultures and from different cultures and like trying to fit it to the game. Mm-hmm. I, I, I've been thinking about it lately. I think uh, a little bit, I don't know, like, I don't know why other people don't do this. Uh, why? why uh, sometimes it's probably uh, time pressure, you know, in that if a designer's under financial pressure to like, you know, get out, get eight games a year out or whatever it is, then, you know, it's uh, spending, you know, they're, they're starkly limited to how much time they can spend. And so they probably make a lot of, you know, subconscious decisions about what needs to be done versus what they want to do. And a lot of the latter ends up being dropped. Um, 
But uh, I've also been thinking on my own level, like the more ke- the more involved I get, the more reading I do, the more voices I hear from, the more keenly aware I become that I'm going to screw something up at some point. Um, and that's not an entirely comfortable feeling. Uh, it requires making one's peace with the fact that like you're going to make mistakes and then you learn from them and do better, which is in theory, like, you know, everybody or not everybody, but most people acknowledge this as a general truth about life. Like that's how life works. Um, but when it comes to actually realizing you're going to do it, like there's this certain, Ooh, Oh no, I don't want, I don't want to make a mistake. Uh, there's this, uh, I don't know, like sort of, sort of related to like, the more, you know, the more you learn, the more you realize you don't know. Yeah, exactly. That sort of thing. So yeah, I feel like, uh, uh, that is a, one potential source of, uh, it's a reason why people might subconsciously avoid doing the research, uh, and, and doing the outreach because there's a little part of their brain, which is like, well, if, if I, if I learn these things, then I might like, you know, not do it right. Uh, or, or something like that, you know, as opposed to just going with it all, always done, but this is all like speculation to me, you know, talking. <laughs> yeah. Ignorance is bliss. I think for a lot of people, right. Doesn't mean you're right. I can't talk for any other game designers. This is just a, a little voice in my own head that I've noticed. Yeah. Uh, and, um, and I'm assiduously not paying attention to. <laughs> uh, well, I really appreciate that. I, listeners of the show know I have a saying that I use all the time of, I'm a better person than I was last year and a worse person than I will be next year. Yes. So Yes, totally. Yeah. Sometime, can't remember exactly when, but like after college, I came to this sort of realization that I put in a similar realization that I put into words is if 10 years from now, I don't look back at myself of today and see myself in some ways as immature, that means I probably haven't grown very much. Yeah. And uh, so like, you know, every now and then I'll do things which might not be the best, but as long as I learn from them. Exactly. Uh, I had Jamie Stegmaier on a couple of weeks ago and, Recently, I don't know if you saw the whole viticulture world stuff, the the kind of drama that kicked up a little. I caught the very fringes. I sort of, uh, I saw a reaction to a reaction to a reaction. I'm, yeah. I'm on Twitter very, like, in very piecemeal chunks now and then. Uh, and since a lot of, and I'm not on Facebook a huge amount at all. So uh, I don't get, there are pieces of board game news, which I will just completely miss unless I, hear about them talking face to face with somebody or in this case over the internet. Um, yeah. And since the pandemic that's happened a lot less cause I'm like, you know, I'm not at cons near and that kind of thing. So oh, yeah. uh, I, I'm a little out of the loop, but this one I heard a little bit about. So yeah. Yeah. And I thought it was interesting and Jamie's such a nice guy. He's like, uh, I got, got to talk to him for like a half hour, you know, and he's just so friendly. And I know that he was trying his best, but you know, it was one of those things where he made a very public mistake about including a conquistador or two, two conquistadors who are like terrible people. And, and uh, it's like an unfortunate thing that just kind of slipped through the cracks. Uh, and he, it's sort of like, you know, people were benefiting from using these conquistadors and he owned up to the, the mistake and like committed to do better. And I, I appreciated that for some people that wasn't enough, but like as a human being, I understand like, go back three years ago, I probably said some awful stuff, you know, <laughs> like, and, or, and I thought I was right. And I probably would have defended it. And now I'm like, Ooh, that is not great. I'm glad I eventually learned better, you know? Yep. Um, yeah. So anyways, I appreciate that. I, I love that you're doing that. Uh, for, 
I also really, people have heard me talk about uh, the rule book for Spirit Island, both, all three of your rule books, right? Jagged Earth, uh, Branch and Claw, and the base. You tie theme into your explanation of the rules and mechanics. Do you write your rule book? I forgot to look at the credits. I generally do. It's, I don't do the layout. Uh, I, I sort of, I'm doing a, a draft version, which doesn't look nearly as nice as the end version. <laughs> um, so, and I didn't do the uh, examples, I think, in the Jagged Earth rule book. Some of the uh, uh, folks listed under editing credits, Brian Blankstein and Dylan Thurston, uh, have helped out a lot with those. But uh, for, in terms of the actual meat of the rules, yes, that so far has always been me. That is cool. I love how you like narratively tie... It makes it very memorable, right? Like it's there's a lot to the game. People call it a very brain burning game, mm-hmm. but like I think that tying the theme and being like this is why this is happening, it, it makes it so much easier to learn, and it makes it more fun to learn. Honestly, like rule books are kind of a slog to get through a lot of the time. Was that like a conscious decision you made? Uh partly, I think it was. It's something I tend to do as I explain the game verbally. And it seemed to help people, like you say, kind of, you know, click into what was happening. Uh, there's a school of thought that that theme is, or not the most important thing about theme, but one of the most important things about theme is that it provides a meaningful structure for the game learner's brain to hang concepts off of. Uh, to that extent, it seemed like it was useful, but mostly I was... I was focused on trying to present the rules in a way which would be useful for people to learn, but also be useful as a reference, which is a really hard, I mean, rule books try and do this double duty thing, like, you know, learn the game from it and then be easy to look stuff up in. And that's a really hard dual pair of responsibilities to have. And uh, I know people who think the Spirit Island rulebook does a great job with it. And I know people who think it does a terrible job with it. Like, and uh, I've been witness to some of the arguments between them uh, <laughs> where they just disagree on a fundamental level, uh, whether I nailed it better than any other rulebook out there or did such a terrible job that they couldn't read the rulebook and had to watch a video to learn the game. And all I can conclude is that people learn in vastly different ways. And so it's going to work for some and not for others. Yeah, it, it was an interesting rule book, like organization wise. But as I went through it, I was like, this makes sense how you did it. But even in the rule book, you were like, maybe you want to tackle the rule book this way or this way, like skip to this section and then come back. Or like, here's some alternative methods, depending on how you learn games. And I thought that was very clever, very considerate. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, I got some I, I did play test the rule book, you know, during during testing and got enough positive feedback on it that I was pretty sure it would work well for at least a sizable chunk of gamers. I don't know. I still, I continue to think about like, how could I have done this differently in a way which would work better for the people for whom it doesn't work while not leaving behind the people for whom it currently works really well. And yeah. uh, I don't know, uh, maybe telepathy, telepathy. Yeah. A little telepathic <laughs> rule book, which beams the information directly into the reader's brain. That yeah. would be great. They wake up and they're just like, I know Spirit Island. Exactly. Yeah. Matrix style rule books, you know. <laughs> that would be the dream. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Get on it. Let's go. <laughs> Some billion dollar idea there. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I know like more and more I'm starting to see rule books take like, like 
I don't know if you've played Lost Ruins of Arnak. I've not yet. I'd like to. Okay. The rule book in it, though, it, it's got like the mechanic side. And then at the top of each page, it does like the the story and how it ties in, I think, a little bit. I haven't read all of it, but but I think that's like another way sort of to do it. But mm-hmm. I, I personally enjoyed being able to like read it and tie it together. That helps my memory. Like I can bust out bust it out and I can do like a quick lookup of different things if I haven't played for a couple months and it's it still comes back really quick. That makes sense. I there was sort of consideration of including more lore snippets in the rule book, but the rule book was already really long as it was. Yeah. <laughs> I could see that. Yeah. <laughs> as this point, that would be. Yeah. At this point there's a, there's enough folks who enjoy Spirit Island that there's a pretty proven audience for sort of random lore but before it was published it was sort of uh will there be well who knows so that brings me to one of the things i had in my mind of like how as you were designing it or before you were really designing it how much lore did you come up with because this is like a very lore rich world so overall i came up with so my my world building experience comes primarily from GMing tabletop role playing games with, you know, a side order of like writing and just imagination, but that's sort of the area where I've practiced it the most. And so a lot of what I did was a very GM like where you build everything the players can see and then sort of out to somewhere between a few inches and a few hundred feet beyond where they can see in every direction. So it presents the appearance of a fully fleshed out world Mm -hmm. while you don't need to actively build absolutely everything. In addition to that, there's also probably some sort of landmarks. And I'm using a spatial metaphor here for for, uh, world building, even though it's not just about the physical locale, but the history and the traditions and the peoples and the metaphysics and all of that. And so, you know, everything which is on stage, which is on screen is fairly detailed. Everything which is just off stage or off screen where you might like take a few steps and see it is enough there to sort of like, you know, if you glimpse it around a corner, be visible. There's a few things sort of miles away, landmarks, where it's like, I know this big important thing is here, and the rough details of it are fleshed out, but I don't know all the specifics. Oh. uh, As a concrete example, uh, the lore in Spirit Island references uh, the first reckoning and the second reckoning between the Dahan and the spirits. Those are both large-scale events. I know in both cases, when they happened, what the larger shape of what happened was like who the actors were uh what instigated it and a but and the sort of the larger scale consequences of how things fell out but i don't have an exact blow by blow or like detailed month by month timeline of everything i don't have the the very fine details partly because if you try and do that much detail in world building everywhere you'll never finish and partly because that gives you the flexibility as you zoom in to tie into other things better because you learn the world better as you go along. So that's sort of how I did the world building for the most part on Spirit Island. There is one exception, which is for the Dahan. For the Dahan, I did a lot more research in world building because like the spirits, I wasn't taking spirits from any existing mythos while I was trying to, like, I had a concept I was going for, which was sort of 
uh, sort of animistic. I wasn't specifically, it wasn't like, this is Shinto animism, very particular thing with very particular spirits where I should be engaging cultural consultants for that culture and making sure that everything works. It's like, no, no, this is animism, but animism is a broad enough concept practiced by enough cultures that if I do it a little differently than all the other cultures, that's fine. Like it's a thing that humans do. And I'm making up my own spirits, so I don't need to like sort of have a fidelity to a source. I am the source there. Yeah. But for the Dahan, while they are not a specific real peoples, they are intended to be a realistic peoples. And doing that required learning a lot. So I was doing research on like, what are island ecologies actually like? What are cultures from actual, you know, tropical islands pre-European contact actually like? You know, what are the, the circumstances? What are the challenges? What are the things which are more like modern society than people might guess? What are the things which are uh, people wouldn't have thought would be true? Uh, all those things. So I did a lot of background research there. And when I say a lot, I mean a lot for a lay person. Like, like I said earlier, you know, the more you learn, the more you learn you don't know. So... I came up with like a 25 or 30 page document on like, okay, here's what I know about the Dahan and their culture. And on the one hand, like that's a fair amount of research and most of it didn't go on screen. That was all background just to make sure that I had that knowledge. But on the other hand, like 25 or 30 pages on an entire culture, like that's ridiculously small amounts of information. You know, if you take real world cultures, you can get PhD dissertations, books written about a particular town of a particular culture in a five-year time period. Uh, and I'm here like describing hundreds or even a thousand years of, of peoples in 30 pages. Like that's not really very much at all. So, but it was still a lot more work in terms of background under the surface, behind the surface work, which isn't visible to the player right off the bat yeah. than there was for any other portion of the game. You know, I didn't do the same for uh, the, for the invaders, for instance, you know, the, there is a neat alternate history of Europe. I did not come up with it. That was actually Paul from greater than games uh, because he's a, a history buff and had some really neat uh, alternate history notions and went, Ooh, you know, you know, cause I had sort of hand with like, Europe is similar to modern day, but has diverged in a few different ways, which means there's more colonizing powers because that's kind of necessary. Otherwise, we'll run out of colonial style adversaries really fast. Uh, and he's like, I have ideas. I can handle that. Uh, and so he can't. So the alternate history for the for Europe, that's all him. Uh, he did a great job with that. And I am super pleased because I really love alternate history stuff. Uh, so it's same. <laughs> that is really awesome. There's a conflicting thing. This is where I always talk about, two like, yeah, there's like a multiverse of like yeah. uh, one multiverse or in one world, I went this way and one world, I went this way. So there's infinite possibilities for this interview. Uh, and I would say I would come back to a question, but I literally never do. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, but let's go back to uh, you as, as a young lad. When did you start gaming? I never really stopped I mean, like yeah. kids play games and I just sort of kept going. Nice. Uh, I mean, you know, when I say games, I mean, in a very broad sense, like, you know, the floor is lava, like, you know, just 
make up a game, you know, okay, I'm going to see if I can jump from this flagstone to that flagstone. I'm going to see if I can throw this thing and get it in between that bush and that blade of grass. Uh, uh, or I'm going to pretend that I'm sneaking up on somebody, even though there's nobody there. Like all, all those sorts of games and also board games, like, you know, my family had both the classic, American mass market games like, you know, Monopoly or Scrabble or what have you, uh, plus some more unusual ones. We eventually had like Risk. We had uh, this very strange game called The Ungame, which, as its title says, was really more of a vehicle for conversation than a board game, but it was in the form of a board game, which I'm not sure it really needed to be. So that was more of maybe a marketing gimmick than anything. Uh, <laughs> and uh, eventually got the, the original uh, dungeon game, which was sort of like Dungeons and Dragons in the board, board game style. So we had all of those. Uh, one of my friends got me the D&D basic, you know, red box set for my ninth birthday. So I got into role-playing games then. Uh, we got introduced to home computers when I was in third grade. My teacher had an old Apple II, or not a new Apple II, uh, but uh, these days, very old computer, uh, and uh, taught the kids to program on it, which is how I got into coding, and you know, which was my career for a good long time. And uh, you know, of course, we ended up getting a, an Apple IIe at home, and there were a bunch of computer games for that. So by the time I was in high school, I was playing board games and tabletop role-playing games and computer games and not exactly minis games, but there was this system called Clayorama or Claydonia, which was in like published in Dragon Magazine, where you and your friends could take Play-Doh and sculpt monsters out of it. And then it had a, like a, a system for like, you know, turning what your monster looked like into stats and then you'd have a battle. So it was it was a sort of minis game, except, you know, each had one mini and it was this giant Play-Doh monster. Interesting. Uh, which was really fun. Um, I never got into published war games super much, but like a friend of mine and I made up a set of rules for fighting. We had like little plastic army figures and we made up a set of rules for like them having a, a, an engagement and fighting. And so I was involved. Oh, and uh, play by mail games were, you know, sort of pre-internet where you could write out orders and like mail them in to somebody who had a program running on a server, which kept track of a shared world state across many people. And everybody would submit their orders and then you'd get your results back. Oh, uh, wow. You know, you know, which included both uh, competitive ones, uh, like one called Alamaze, and uh, more sort of exploration and discovery with both competition and cooperation, uh, one uh, called uh, Monster Island, created and run by Jack Everett. And so I was doing all these things, like all the way through and, you know, coming up with my own. And I, I remember, like, sitting down with my family one Friday evening and when I was like seven and just making a probably very pedestrian roll and move board game. Um, you know, but it's just like, you know, do some stuff. Uh, when my mom was cleaning out her attic in preparation for a move, she found a school project board game, I, which I had no memory of about like the, the, the perils of drugs and tobacco. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I looked at this, I'm like, I don't remember this at all, but I can believe that I made it. Um, it, also was a roll and move game, but there at least, like that was when I was 10 instead of seven. And there I'm like, ooh, ooh, I had some good ideas here because there were spaces on it 
Uh, first of all, you had various branching paths which you could choose on. And while some spaces were land on it and do a thing, others were moved past it and do a thing. So your choices actually had strategic significance, uh, despite the fact that the strategic significance was like draw a card from this deck instead of that deck. So, you know, uh, I did not exactly have exposure to modern board games at the time. It was the 80s. Yeah. <laughs> Modern, those were modern games at the time, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, totally get that. That is really, really fascinating. Just like, yeah, you never, did you ever take a gap? Like, you know, I played some games in elementary and stuff, but I feel like in middle school and high school, I kind of fell out and then eventually got back in with like Catan and Ticket to Ride. Did you ever have like a falling out with board games? With any given type of game, yes. Like if you look at just board games or oh, just... Okay. RPGs, or once I got into college, I started doing live action role playing, LARPs, you know? Yeah. And so if you look at any given one, any given category, you could find a period of two to three years where I didn't do a whole lot of that. Uh, in For board games, it would probably have been in sort of middle to high school as I was getting much more into role playing games. Although even then, like I was in chess club. So, you know, I was still doing chess, just not a lot of other board games. Yeah. Um, and but still play occasional. So eh, maybe, maybe not. I'm not sure. Like, yeah, not significant. Not like, yeah, not like I, mean, I, I, yeah. I left for 10 years and then the prodigal board gamer returned. No, yeah. Not- <laughs> yeah. Um, no, that's cool. Um, you know, there's so many different ones that you do. You still LARP? Not frequently, but yes. Oh, that's uh, cool. Yeah, it's it's a lot of fun. It's wonderfully immersive. Uh, I I lean towards the theater style LARPs where uh, anything, where if you're trying to do something unusual for a 21st century human, then it tends to be uh, resolved with some sort of, you know, board game-ish like mechanics, like, you know, maybe you roll a die or maybe you have an ability card or something, as opposed to like, you know, some games are more live action in terms of like including things like lock picking or fighting or other physical challenges, uh, you know, climbing and clambering. Um, But I've done some of each. They're both fun. And there's other styles beside. Nordic is really neat. Uh, Very emotionally, experientially centered rather than more acting drama centered. I don't want to get into the weeds on, on LARP theory, but yeah. Uh, yeah, there's just like there's a lot of different types of board games which create a lot of different types of experiences. There's a lot of different types of LARPs which create very, very different types of experiences. Yeah, I just learned about Nordic a couple of weeks ago from another podcast, and I was like, "Holy cow, that is intense!" Like, yep. I just I was blown away by like I, you know I always think of you know people going in with like foam swords or shanais or like, you know, like uh, yeah. wooden swords type of thing, stabs yeah. and, you know, like just doing a and d type thing. But to be able to yeah. do like vampire masquerade, you know, like or uh, just deep like political stuff or historical stuff mm-hmm. uh, is fascinating to me. Um, but that's that's awesome. What like uh, do you have a certain type of character you like to play and do you fully immerse? Like, do you commit to your character? I would assume. For LARPing? Uh, yeah. Well, most of the games I play when I'm LARPing, the theater-style games are usually not write-your-own-character. They're usually, like, the game is written, and then there'll be a casting questionnaire where the GMs say, like, okay, given, you know, here are half a dozen character traits. Which of them appeal to you? Which of them uh, uh, do not? Uh, would you rather not play? Uh, here are a few types of, you know, would you be okay playing a plot in which you had to, you know... Uh, 
lie and deceive to somebody who's really close to you? Are you okay playing uh, uh, a right bastard? Um, you know, that sort of thing. Um, you know, this, uh, you know, are you okay playing uh, romance plots? Because some, you know, some people are uncomfortable with, you know, I am playing somebody else, but if I'm being romantic with somebody, that makes me feel weird relative to like, you know, my sort of real life romantic, you know, but other people are like, ah, it's a role. It's, it's completely separate. It's no problem. Yeah. So, so they'll have this questionnaire and it helps them cast the game, just like you would cast a play. And so you get your character sheet ahead of time and read over it and, you know, learn about who you are and what you're doing. And so, you know, there's, so I play all different sorts of things. You know, I've learned over the years, I have some things I like more than other things. And, but, and every now and then, like I'll play a particular sort of role. Like there was a span of five years where I got cast as the person in charge of keeping everything from going all chaotic, which if you've ever played a live action role-playing game, you know, is a role, which is basically doomed to failure because, you know, <laughs> if you're trying to keep everything from going sideways out the window, what you're really trying to do is keep the game from being interesting for half the players, at least. And, you know, so you're setting yourself up against the game masters and like that never goes well. So after playing that, I don't know, remember how many times in a row I started putting on the casting questionnaires, like, don't cast me as the person in charge who's trying to keep everything calm and orderly. Don't want that. <laughs> but it's been long enough. I can do that now as long as I, uh, I am clear on the fact that the GMs are clear on the fact that I realize it's not going to work. This makes a lot of sense for your game, like just tying it to Spirit Island alone, where I think that's like a very immersive experience. Um, I think it ties in perfectly to LARPing and, and that type of thing. It's yeah. When I, when I play games, I try and get very much into the character and the character's headspace and acting as they would. Although trying to keep that sort of 10% of the brain with an eye on also making it be a good game for the game as a whole. It's a, it's a point of divergence between, for example, you know, theater style and Nordic LARP. Like, are you more fo focused on it being uh, uh, like, you know, what are you trying to evoke? Uh, what are you trying to make this game for yourself? What are you trying to make it for other players? Uh, yeah. And so given the, there can be different priorities. That makes perfect sense. Are you a, are you a video gamer? Somewhat, not as much as some folks I know, but I, I play some. I'm just curious. I always have this question in mind, which I think ties to a lot of what we're talking about. Like when you create, if, if you've ever done like a character creator, do you, you craft them after yourself or do you just make up somebody like in that world? Oh, like for, for customizing yourself in a video game, that kind yeah. of stuff? Yeah, like in Skyrim or something. I don't know what you've played. It varies by video game. Usually if it's a video game, I'll create someone that seems interesting to me, not that necessarily looks like me. If it's a virtual avatar system, like if it's more for uh, a message board or a, or a chat or, or anything like that, or if it's not for the game proper, but for like the company's chat servers, which are a layer sort of in front of the game for like matchmaking or the like, if it's for that, then I'll use something which looks more like me. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. Do you mind talking briefly about like, are you married, kids, all that? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm okay going over the broad, the broad strokes. Uh, okay. I'm, I'm married. I have two kids who are sort of, you know, elementary school aged. And we have, uh, I'm fortunate enough to live close to other family, uh, my parents and my sister and brother-in-law. Uh, so, you know, we both, we get to see them and they get to see the kids, which is all great. 
That is awesome. The main reason I ask this is because, uh, you know, especially in the pandemic times, family becomes our gaming center. Is your wife, are your kids much into the board gaming or other gaming really with you? So my wife enjoys some two-player abstract positionals, but mostly doesn't board game much. However, she has discovered that she enjoys Spirit Island. So that is really great. She didn't try it at all while it was in testing because she's like, if I like it, that doesn't go well because then it's going to change. Yeah. Uh, Smart. The, yeah. So, uh, but after it came out, she tried it and was, uh, you know, just to see what it was and was, you know, pleasantly surprised to find that she enjoyed it. So we've played that together some, but mostly she's not a big board gamer. My kids game more. They are not, I haven't really pushed them to play lots of board games. I don't, you know, want them to do it just because that's what their dad does, but I've definitely made many options and opportunities for them. So they've played certainly many more board games than the average United States child their age, but not perhaps as many as the kids of some other geeks that I know who have, you know, jumped in, not just with both feet, but with both feet, both hands and a, a shovel and a wheelbarrow. Uh, <laughs> like, give me more, give me more. Um, yeah. But They've enjoyed games and have been playing them since they were, you know, two or three years old. Uh, the exactly what games are in or, or out of favor sort of, you know, varies from year to year. Uh, for a while, King Domino was the big hit, um, which, you know, I really appreciate as a game, which like I was playing it with my younger when he was three and I was playing it with my strategy gamer friends. And a game which you, where you can do both of those and have fun with both is just fantastic. Agreed. Uh, they both do play Spirit Island. They both picked it up unusually young because they'd just been ambiently exposed to it for often enough that even before learning, even before sitting down to learn the rules at all, they could like name all the pieces, tell you how you won the game, uh, and like a bunch of other things. You know, they they had most of the nomenclature down and the and the general game flow because they'd seen it played so often. So. The, the teach actually wasn't super hard. Like the, they picked up the rules much faster than they picked up the ability to sit still for two hours and play. <laughs> uh, Understandable. <laughs> you know. uh, that I ran into that problem with my, I introduced it to my in-laws and uh, we had already been gaming for quite a while. And so it was like almost 11, I think at night. And, you know, they'd, they were tired. And so we ended up not even finishing the game, but I was like, Oh, like I should have waited. I should have waited for another time to introduce this. Like, cause then you would have had like a better experience overall. Yep. With my kids, with each one of them, it was like, okay, all right. They want to learn. They've said several times, okay, let's block off an entire afternoon. Yeah. Start off, make sure they've had lunch. Start <laughs> yes, it off. Important. You know, uh, you know, then okay, and, and be and you know, then okay, three or four turns in, okay, we're breaking for a snack. Have a snack. Go back to the game. <laughs> you know. Uh try and set it up for success. Yeah. See, that's smart. It's like it, I think that's kids, adults, everybody has to be like set up for success to enjoy it's, it. It's it's true for everybody, uh, and I but I feel like as a parent, it's something that crops up a lot with kids, you know, the the, you know, okay, here's a thing which they could enjoy or they could hate and, and which it is will depend on their initial exposure and how that initial exposure happens is up to you. And, uh, that's, yeah. 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 What about like, 
are you know you're doing TTRPGs. Do you still do those? Yeah, to some extent, I I have a very very long running Earthdawn campaign. Uh, I don't know what that well, is. Oh, Earthdawn. Earthdawn is a system uh, originally put put out by FASA. Uh, I think it's been through many editions, and some of the editions were licensed and put out by other companies. I cannot remember what the most recent edition is, nor who put it out, because the campaign started long enough ago that we're I think two editions back. Oh, okay. and. Continuing on that, uh, but I put it together to be sort of a troop style game with like 10 or 11 players, but a given only like four or five would be in any given arc of games so that it would be robust against somebody getting busy for, you know, a few months or, or half a year. Yeah. And also let players trade stories because like war stories for tabletop RPGs tend to be fundamentally much less interesting to people not playing the RPG than people who are actually involved in it. I've seen exceptions. I know some people who can spin out yarns from their from their role-playing games and uh, have people in stitches or in tiers um, just based on those alone. But those, those I find to be the exception rather than the rule. But I'm like, hey, if we have like 10 or 11 people all like emotionally invested in the setting of the game, then they can tell stories to each other. And that way they can enjoy telling more stories and have an audience who actually appreciates them. Uh, and is also learning things about what happened in game, which is uh, useful. And it turns out it's a good thing I structured it that way because over the course of the campaign, more than half of the players have become parents. And then we had a pandemic. So it's uh, uh, that that stress, that resiliency has been stress tested pretty badly. Um, <laughs> we're going to see if I can manage to get things rolling again after the two-year pandemic hiatus. Um, it's, I don't know, but... Uh, that has been my primary tabletop role playing, though I did a bit over Zoom over the pandemic. You've like, have you designed any TTRPGs? I feel like I've heard you before say you've like dabbled in it or some. I don't remember. I have the, I have one published supplement for one edition of Paranoia, the uh, role playing game of a uh, grimly and humorously dystopian future. Are you familiar with Paranoia? Oh no. Oh, you should totally go look it up. Uh, Just the name alone, I'm like, I'm intrigued. <laughs> yeah, uh, one of the one of the taglines is "Imagine a future co-designed by George Orwell and the Marx Brothers." Oh, uh, it it is uh, a game where the players live in a dystopian, which of course claims to be utopian society called Alpha Complex. Uh, which is not outdoors. Outdoors is a place you're only allowed to go if you have certain security clearances. And uh, you're trying to hunt down traitors while, of course, all the player characters are actually traitors. Uh, so you're trying to conceal your own treason while exposing that of your fellow players while going on a mission, which is almost certainly a wild goose chase and or a death trap. Uh, and if you mention goose, then you're not cleared for that knowledge. You're probably going to be executed. And, oh, wow. Yeah, no, it's, uh, you have, you have, Every character has a number of uh, replacement clones because you're going to die a lot. It's a a ridiculous game. Oh, you can play it more sort of grim social commentary or more like cartoony violence. Uh, I find the sweet spot is about halfway in between. Um, anyhow, there was one edition of it. One of the editions was called Paranoia XP, uh, uh, and it was done by Alan Varney and uh, through Mongoose Publishing, and. Alan ran a lexicon game. Have you ever heard of lexicon games? They're a game you play on a wiki where a group of players collaboratively define a 
world or a history or a sequence of events uh, in the in the conceit of the game, they are researchers of some sort, and you're creating wiki entries which link both to each other and forward link to as yet unwritten entries. The idea is that you're creating a sort of encyclopedia of this thing which doesn't exist. Interesting. Um, and collab- and you can't contradict anything which has been put in another player's entry. Everything written is canon, but you're allowed to comment on each other's players' entries and play the part of snarky academics infighting. The uh, I can't remember the name of the person who came up with the lexicon game format. Anyhow, uh, Alan Varney ran a paranoia lexicon game where we were all ultraviolet citizens investigating the toothpaste disaster, which at the start of the game was completely undefined. Like, what was the toothpaste disaster? We have no idea. And in traditional alpha complex fashion, so we were sort of trying to figure out what was going on, but being high programmers, we were also pursuing our own agendas and trying to get stuff done. A normal lexicon game might have, I don't know, half a dozen players, maybe as many as eight to 10, and the entries are canonically supposed to be like three to 500 words long. This lexicon game attracted like 27 players to start off with. And some people were writing like five to 6,000 word entries and oh. turns were twice a week. And you can't contradict anything which has been written. So, uh, and then the commentary and all the entries and the info, like the, the nature of the role playing, which was going on in sort of the meta layer was such that the commentary exceeded the length of the entries sometimes by a factor of five to 10. It became like this 20 to 40 hour a week just thing. Now, I happened to be between jobs at the time, so I could spend the time doing it and really got into it. It was glorious fun. It was a ridiculous 10 weeks because uh, it was like 20 turns, two turns a week. I think of the initial 27 people, we dropped down to like 13 or 14 inside of a week or two because the pace was so frenetic, which frankly was good because it meant that there was a little bit less coming out, but it still generated this immense corpus of material. Uh, and then... Alan uh, invited some of the folks who had been both uh, inventive in their writing, consistent with the paranoia canon, uh, and consistent in actually getting entries in on time. Or at least that's what I'm guessing his criteria were. I don't know for sure. You'd have to, have to ask Alan. But he invited a, a, a hand like half a dozen of us to do some writing for the Paranoia XP line, which he was uh, doing the writing and editing for. Uh, some of some of the folks did it as sort of a group endeavor uh, under the name the Trader Recycling Studio, and they put out a number of source books for the Paranoia SXP line. I contributed a touch towards those, mostly just little bits and pieces here and there. Uh, but I did do one source book on my own, which was the mutant source book for. Uh, in, oh yeah, that's another thing. Uh, being a mutant is treasonous uh, unless you are properly registered, at which point you have to you know wear a large. Uh, stripe indicating that you are a registered mutant in the service of the computer. And of course, you would never experience any discrimination for being a registered mutant. Uh, not at all. That would, i.e., it happens all the time. So <laughs> yeah. most mutants try to conceal their mutant power uh, and perhaps use it as a covert way to get an edge. But of course, being an unregistered mutant is treason. And normally, all player characters are, in fact, mutants. So this is the source book for all the different mutations you know you can have and the additional mutations and ways for the game master to play around with that and ways for the game master to encourage players to use their mutations because doing so, like, players may be reluctant to do so because they're thinking, oh, I could get caught and that would be bad, which is true. But what you want to do is create circumstances where, you know, that creates interest. Like, you know, it's one of those cases where the player being safe is at, con- is at conflict with the narrative interest of the game for everybody, including that player. And so you want to encourage the players in various ways to be able to get ahead. Paranoia is not a game about being safe. Like, just by playing, you're signing up for an experience of, I am going to be 
like blackmailed, framed, betrayed, shot in the back. And I'll be doing the same thing to all of my fellow character, fellow uh, player characters. Um, and so, you know, the source book has stuff about that and different things, you know, you can do with mutations going wrong at unexpected moments. Um, it's, it's long since out of print. Uh, Paranoia is, has moved on and has uh, gotten at least one new edition since then, if not more, but. Um, it yeah. sounds really fascinating. Like, that, yeah, like a lot of intrigue, uh, which I love. That is so cool. Anybody who, who enjoys tabletop RPGs and doesn't mind something which is adversarial in good fun uh, should definitely check out Paranoia. Like it's, it's a lovely game. It's, uh, it's, been around the block so many times it's probably worn a hole in the street um and it's uh but it's evolved over the years and it's excellent it's fantastic i keep coming back to it that's awesome um well as we uh get further in here let's kind of go out oh no 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 before we move on i gotta ask this the hardest question in the whole podcast what's your favorite board game at the moment favorite board game to play or to work on to play so I'm going to exclude my own titles from that. If I don't exclude my own titles, the answer is Spirit Island, okay. uh, which is something, a game I genuinely enjoy playing and have a regular play group with, just irrespective of whether I'm doing playtesting at, at any given time. Which is genuinely awesome to hear because you hear more often than not designers getting sick of their own, you know, you're playing it hundreds and hundreds of times oh, yeah. and and you're just like, I'm done. I'm burnt out. Oh. I love my game. It's a great game, but I like I can't play it. I think so. That's yes. really cool to hear. I do burn out on it, but it's only usually after I've been pushing on playtesting and like so playing more than I usually would. Then I'll get burned out for anywhere between a few weeks and a few months, and then I'll start feeling the itch to get back to it. Aside from that, uh, my gaming, like my face-to-face gaming time, has just been so obliterated by the pandemic. It's mm-hmm. a little hard to say. So a perennial favorite that I haven't gotten to the table in far too long is Argent the Consortium by Trey Chambers. I really enjoy it. A new to me and intriguing is I got I got to play half of a game of Arc Nova recently, and I want to go back and play it a couple more times to 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 see how that goes. I am very fond of what's the title? The transparent card game where you're making Canvas. Canvas, thank you. Uh, I have enjoyed that when friends have brought it over, and one of my kids just said they'd really enjoy trying it. So I just picked that up, and I I like it a lot because I like, like, the mechanics are really nice and tight and good. But there's also this aesthetic component, which you're doing at the same time. And I'm hoping that sticks around through, like, more than the two or three plays which I've had so far. You know, it, it can be, a, it is a, a sad truth that for nearly any game, thematic elements will tend to fade the more you play, the more you play, the more you tend to engage with the, the mechanics themselves rather than the, the lore or the world or the, the story, you know, those, those tend to background. Maybe that will be true for Canvas. I'm not sure, you know, but there it's less lore and more about just like, I'm making a pretty painting. That's awesome. Um, yeah. That one's a nice one because it's like when you're done, you have something visually a- appealing, you know, like games yeah. like Sagrada, you you know, and things like that where you're done. Even if you lose, you're like, well, I lost, but I've got this cool thing. Yep. And that's sort of what I'm hoping for a little bit with Arc Nova is, is that sort of game where uh, sort of Agricola style where it's like, well, maybe I got my butt kicked, but I made this neat zoo. Uh, yeah. 
you know, so uh, there's that hope. I picked up Brian Boru recently, which is a really neat area majority game which uses trick-taking as sort of its overall structure, or at least a form of trick-taking. You don't have to follow suit, which some purists will mean will say means it's not pure trick-taking, but it's pretty close, and uh, it's very interesting. Uh, I played Ankh recently, and that is, mm, it presents as like, you know, your troops on a map, giant plasticky, you know, rah-rah game, but it really feels like a pleasingly tight area majority contest. Uh, I I really like that, and I want to get back to that and try some more. So as you might be able to tell by my answer, favorite board game is a really hard question to answer. Yeah, Uh, that's why I preface it. I always preface this is the hardest question. (laughs) It totally is. I mean, it's, I mean, in some ways it's the easiest question because the answer is like, I don't know, you know, or, or, or (laughs) unask the question or what is the context? Like, you know, what is my favorite board game in this particular instant? I don't know. So all of these are my favorite board game in some way or other. And it's especially hard during a, pandemic when you don't actually get to play regularly <laughs> i i and, and even before then like i became a parent and i went from hosting weekly game nights to hosting monthly game days uh because just time um so oh, yeah you know back you know 10 15 years ago i was playing games probably two to three times a week and that has been much less true recently <laughs> so much just my awareness of what's out there is not as high as it has been um that, yeah, happens to us all. Yep. <laughs> um, I, I've got, let's see, we, we're going to go outside of board games. We will, but of course, I could talk to you for hours just about Spirit Island, but mm-hmm. we have to touch on other stuff. But I'm going to touch on just a couple more things. Uh, two quick questions about it, maybe quick, yeah. I don't know. Uh, what's your favorite spirit to play? I don't have one. Okay. After Spirit Island came out, I you know, started log. I log my plays on Board Game Geek of plays of Spirit Island, which are not playtesting, uh, or which are mostly not playtesting. Sometimes there'll be one or two playtest elements, but when they're fundamentally not really playtesting, I'll log them. And uh, because, oh. and then after I'd done that for a while, I looked back. Oh, which spirit do I just gravitate to? And it's mostly even. Like there, oh, wow. there are some there are some bumps. Like the lower complexity spirits, I play a little bit more. Uh, possibly because I'll tend to play them when I'm teaching a game uh, to new players. And there's one or two which I play a little less, but some, that's just been like partly statistical noise, I think. So like I play all of them. I enjoy all of them. Uh, that is cool. I, I like all of them. Uh, there are definitely spirits where I have fondnesses for, where you can, like I can say, I can point at a spirit and I can say this spirit really speaks to me in a way more or differently than all the other spirits. Like River Surges in Sunlight is the first spirit for whom I saw the spirit art. And so it will always have an echo of that memory of looking at it and going, oh, yes. Like, because I always knew I wanted Spirit Island to be a beautiful game. And and so, and that was the moment when I saw the art, when something deep inside me relaxed and said, it's going to be good. <laughs> and uh, so it's like, oh, fantastic. Uh, excellent. Um, you know, Lightning Swift Strike, I have a t-shirt of and, you know, which I got because I, partly because like I wear black t-shirts and the background on Lightning Swift Strike is black, but partly because I just like lightning, like lightning. I like it. Thunderstorms are neat. Um, and so, so, so lightning appeals to me on that level. Uh, 
but for nearly, you know, uh, you know, finder of paths unseen, uh, and uh, I enjoy ways and wayfinding. So, like, it speaks to me on that level, not necessarily on a mechanical level. Although I'm pleased with how the the, the mechanisms turned out. Uh, but just on a conceptual level, similarly, like I have a fondness for time travel. So fractured days, like uh, on a thematic level, I, I, I like, um, I could go through like all of the spirits on this, like, like a, a moment about each many minds. There's a particular moment while walking by the river where a flock of Canada geese all as one just turned and looked at me and my brain went, that's a spirit. <laughs> and <laughs> I was like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. The, 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 Yes. The, the sort of hive mind spirit. Okay, there we go. Um, th- they all have something about them, which is like that. So uh, I, I, c- I could talk for hours. That's cool. Yeah, I would love to listen, but <laughs> but we're going to keep it in a relative good time frame here, I think. Um, yep. Do you have a favorite adversary to go against? With the caveat that I like diversity in the adversaries. So, you know, to some extent, it's whichever one I haven't played for a long time. Right. Uh, that being said, I will disproportionately play against Scotland. Okay. So, like, if, if you look at the, I think it's seven published adversaries, like, if you divided them up, if you looked at how often I played them, Scotland would be more often than the others. Yeah. Uh, because it's all... So, the initial adversary, the adversaries in the base game, uh, England... And, uh, well, specifically England and uh, Sweden and Brandenburg, Prussia. Brandenburg, Prussia I, is great, but it's vanilla and I play it a lot because it's great for players who don't want to deal with the complexity. England is a lot of fun, but it can make for very long, slightly sloggy games. Sweden I love, but it's tremendously front-loaded. And so, like, it has this dynamic of okay, like the early game is really, really fraught, but if you can survive till the mid game, you're usually good. Yeah. Uh, and France has a little bit of that too, with it, although more with its loss condition. It does push hard on Blight in the mid game. But but uh, Scotland has this really nice, it pushes on a lot of different things, but like um, uh, as an example, explorer control. Fast explorer movement is fantastic against Brandenburg, Prussia. Terrible against England. Not strictly useless. If you can carve out an area with few buildings, then it can still be useful. But you have to work really hard for it. Um, Scotland is between those two. So it's less useful because it's no good on the coasts. But it's still fine inland. Um, and Scotland does a lot of things like that where it's like, oh, okay. Like there's, there's, It makes a lot of different things harder in an interesting way, but also isn't too complex on the rules. So it's not too bad. Like it just hit this nice sweet spot that I really like. I also really like its escalation and how it makes things asymmetric where it's not like every board has a little bit more of a problem. It's like pick one board and that board is hosed. Um, and it kind of breaks up the play pattern, which some groups will sometimes fall into of I've got my board, you got your board and we'll help each other with spirit targeting powers, but we're not going to like, you know, cross over into each other's territory. Uh, when like, that is a pattern of play which works fine up through fairly high difficulties, but it is actually better oftentimes if you like, you know, you don't want to ignore your own board, but once you have a basic handle on your own board, it tends to be better like, oh, I could handle my own board here, but it would take me two powers to deal with this one land of mine, and I could handle two lands on another player's board with those same two powers, and they have something which would let me handle like maybe they're playing Stones Unyielding Defiance. And they can just jump in on this one land I can't cope with, and they'll tank the blight. Okay, so we can be more efficient because we're more spread out. And Scotland's escalation is a bit of a kick in the pants for the table as a whole to be like, 
pay attention to the whole game, not just your board. And I like that. And I like that about it. So it's fear deck is a little thick, like it's a little sloggy in that regard. Um, but like, you know, any spirit, any adversary, like I could point out and say, if I were going back to this, I would do these things differently. Um, like I'm always in the back of my, in some ways it's a relief once things get published because it's like, okay, I can stop tinkering with them. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so Scotland probably a little more than the others, but I like all of them and enjoy playing against all of them. So cool. Good. I mean, there was more of a definite answer there. Uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. So, because I don't want to neglect other designs you've done. For Science, mm. that's your mm. most recent release, right? Yes. Yep. Uh, which I think is a fun, I haven't gotten to play it yet, but a fun dexterity uh, game where you're you're trying to cure a disease. Uh, <laughs> yeah. A little bit of unfortunate timing there, maybe, but. It was so unfortunate. Like, it wasn't just close to the pandemic, the Kickstarter was scheduled or the, kick the, the crowdfunding was scheduled for April, 2020. And as we were in the run up to it, cause you know, these things don't happen overnight. We knew that was going to be true in January, February. And we started looking like, uh Oh, uh Oh, this is kind of bad timing and insensitive and Oh no. But thankfully the publisher uh, had the, awesome idea of, okay, for every copy we crowdfund, we're going to donate $5 to a humanitarian relief organization for COVID. And I'm like, yay, publisher doing the right thing. Yeah. Because uh, the game, had, I'd been designing the game since before Spirit Island. Like that one I've been working on since 2010, 2009. Oh, wow. So, you know, it's not like, ooh, here comes a pandemic. Let's design a game real quick. That would have been the fastest game ever made at that point. You know, like. Oh, my God. No. <laughs> that would have been terrible and not to mention kind of reprehensible. Um, yes, like, absolutely. But it was coming out anyway. And so it's like, OK, all right, let's do this. You know, let's make sure that uh, also the original title of the game was something where like there's actual pandemic happening. We cannot release it. Uh, with with the with the title science or die like that's just not okay so let's rename it okay you know held like a renaming uh, uh, ideas competition online and you know for science came out yeah uh, so I'm Which super I pleased with yeah I love it too uh, it made it a little hard to search for on Amazon for a little while because it's a phrase used by many things. But uh, I think that I earned that out now if you search for science board game. Uh, although, sadly, it is currently mostly out of stock. It, uh, it took a while to fulfill. The, the fulfillment partner that Gray Fox used took a very long time about it. And uh, by then, uh, it was sort of like, you know, selling modestly. And then I uh, got uh, Game of the Year from... Uh, no pun included, another podcast uh, for 2021. And like all the all the available copies then went boom and vanished. Oh, wow. Which is on the one level awesome. But uh, on the on the on the other hand, it's like, oh, well, now I can't point people at it. There's another there's some more coming over from a warehouse overseas. Last I heard they were due to arrive in the US and go into distribution in like a month or two. This is very hand wavy. And I don't remember when that post was. So like, Late May, June, I don't really know. And given global shipping, it's probably uncertain anyway. Yeah. But like a few hundred more copies, maybe, or, or, or a few dozen more copies, I don't honestly know, uh, should be going into distribution at some point in the upcoming months. 
Um, but then after that, it's it's all gone unless there's a reprint, in which case you'll need to like poke Gray Fox and say, hey, we want this game and it's not available. Please reprint it. Oh, wow. OK. Yeah. So you need to people need to be looking out for it. I think it's yeah, I think it looks clever. Like you're using different blocks, different shapes, right? Small uh, planks, uh triangles of different angles a star a, you know like things you might see in like a child's like you know uh put the this shape through this hole that's actually exactly so the prototype was done with a melissa and doug kids block set <laughs> i love it and it was done that way because i had been told that like wooden blocks are ridiculously pricey and so played enough with my prototypes to realize it's going to need like a reasonable number of blocks. I can't get away with like, you know, 15 or 20. It's really going to need to be like, you know, 30 or 40. Yeah. And so I'm like, okay, this game might just not be economically viable to do via the standard uh, publisher distributor method. It might need to be direct sales or it might even need to be, okay, here are the like, here are the cards, buy this block set from Melissa and Doug and you can play the game. <laughs> um, as it turned out, that was not the case. Um, and I don't think you actually get all the copies of each block you need in the Melissa and Doug set anyway. Uh, and they're not color coded, which would, getting the color coded blocks is a great quality of life uh, uh, improvement. Um, but that was sort of the origin of why it's using these you know, fairly simple, straightforward shapes. But uh, yeah, you design, so the conceit is that you're trying to cure diseases and you design the cures using cards, which show all these block shapes on them connected in various ways with lines. And then you have to take the design, which you have made, and then you have to physically build it in as a tower on your table using these, you know, things which look like kids blocks, uh, where every pair of blocks shown in your design as touching by a line must be touching in real life. And if there's no line, they can't be touching. And that sounds fairly simple and it is fairly simple, but it can result in some very interesting constraints. And most importantly, it results in things where how you design things with the cards drastically influences how difficult it is to build them. And that's really what I was going for with the game was a dexterity game because most of the games where you build stuff, it's like, okay, the game shows you exactly what you need to build and then you need to build it. And I wanted something where you could kind of like, you know, where you're hoisted on your own petard. Like if you were building something tremendously difficult, it's not because the game said, haha, you must build this thing, which is insanely hard. Instead, it's, well, the game told you to design a cure which fulfilled these constraints, and you did, but you didn't pay attention to the fact that now you're trying to stack three different blocks on the narrow end of a cylinder, and uh, that's kind of tough. Why do you have to do that? Because you said so. Um, <laughs> and you go, oh, okay, but you know the game lets you then, like, you know, you can get rid of those cards. It wastes them, but you can get rid of them and then create a new design, which is easier, and then you can build the easier design. So there's a trade-off, like you can go, and it's a timed game. It's a real-time game. There's no turns. Everybody's playing at once, 15 minutes. You know, you live or you die. And uh, you, so you can earn time by not thinking about your designs. You can just play designs really quickly, but then it may take you longer to build them because they're harder to build. Or you can go the other way. So it rewards planning and thought in a way which I also find is like, it's not the norm for straight up dexterity games. So that was also something I was going for. Uh, and then for every cure you successfully uh, build or for every bit of side research you successfully do, you uh, can buy tiles for a universal vaccine, which is sort of a tiley, puzzly uh, area enclosing game, okay. uh, which you do, which is what you do to actually win the game. And as an intermediate step before you win the game, it also powers up your special abilities. 
Very cool. Wow. Yeah. That's a lot more intense than what I was looking at. So there's a lot more to it than my initial research. It, it is, you know, yeah, it, it has a fair amount going on like for, but it also has a lot of replayability. Like I, I could have made it a lot simpler, but then it would have been a game which you wanted to play like twice and then you're done. But as it is, the types of things you build, like there's much like in Spirit Island, I went for variability in adversaries. In For Science, there's, I think, five different ways you can crank up the difficulty. There's the very straightforward ones that are just like, you have less time. You must play to more points. Those are easy. Uh, and though those sound like they'd be the same, they're actually quite different in terms of experience. But then you can also, uh, the, the constraints on what you need to do to cure a disease uh, are specified by the, the lab they have on the board. And there's replacement labs at, of different levels. There's like, you know, the base ones are level one, but then there's two different sets of level two labs, so two different sets of level three labs. And you can boost those up. Uh, you can do level two and a half by mixing and matching, um, you know, and those increase the challenge in different ways. You might need to add more cards in order to cure things. You might have to add more mutations to the disease. Um, and speaking of customization, also like the, the mutations uh, and events, if you play with events, which I haven't even gotten to, all have icons. The, 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 they span the gamut from like, I want this to be a very cerebral challenge. So this is going to change things in a way which alter the, the, the thinky brain part of the game to I want a dexterity focused game where these are going to change things in a way which change like physical positioning of blocks. Like, oh no, I need to do this. And like to, I want this to veer more in party game directions. So it's like, okay, now you need to do this build. And while you're doing the build, you have to be, you know, you, your dominant hand has to be holding onto your ear or like the event happens and everybody needs to like, you know, it's a contamination event. So everybody needs to get up, leave the room, count to 10, come back and like, you know, resume what they were doing. Um, and there's icons on each of them, which show like, this is a sort of, you know, game mechanism versus, you know, block level versus get up and run around like, you know, a party game maniac. Uh, so you can customize your event deck and your mutation deck to your preferred style of play. Or you can be like, okay, we're playing in a library. Let's omit all the party game stuff. Um, so it's, uh, it has a, a lot of replayability, a lot of variability. It has even just the, even if you don't go for like, you know, the Kickstarter additional stuff, it still has like 20, 15, at least a dozen different roles, if not 15 or 20, um, each of which has a different special ability and different workshop. So yeah, there's, there's, there's a lot to play with. I'm super proud of it. I'm glad. Yeah, I can tell that passion's coming through. And it's so, so cool to hear more about, I, you know, I, from looking at it, it looked really good. But being able to actually hear more about it, it's like, whoa, there's a... Yeah, this is the same designer as Spirit Island. Like, there's more than meets the eye, you know, at first glance. Yeah. So, um, very cool. Uh, can Is there anything you can tease for Spirit Island? I can tease, well, I've been upfront about this, and it even got referenced earlier, which is that I'm doing groundwork for a Dahan-centric expansion. And... You know, it's not guaranteed 100% that that will be published because nothing is ever certain in life. Uh, but I really, really, really want it to be. Uh, so I'm doing, I'm still, it's a long process made longer by the pandemic and a variety of other factors I don't want to get into here. Um, but I'm still doing research uh, and lots of reading and uh, talking to folks, learning stuff. I am have a lot of ideas, but we're still very much at the early stages. So don't expect that anytime soon. I can also say what I've said elsewhere, which is before a Dahan Cedric expansion ever comes out, there will definitely be at least one something. <laughs> uh, 
Uh, uh, and, and when I say something, I don't just mean Feather and Flame. Feather and Flame got announced in the last couple months, which is promo packs one and two for Spirit Island bundled together so it can go into distribution. So the folks in, you know, uh, Europe or Australia or wherever can get it without having to pay ridiculous shipping costs uh, because it should be able to go through normal distribution channels. Um, so even aside from Feather and Flame, I can say like there will be other Spirit Island content before any Dahan-centric expansion. Uh, you know, that, that yes. Um, again, nothing is fully 100% guaranteed until it's actually announced officially by Greater Than Games. Uh, but I can say I have worked on it and I'm very hopeful and pleased and anticipated for, for people to see what I've been working on. Yeah. Um, and there's, there's other stuff I want to say, but I can't say yet. And, <laughs> but uh, yeah. 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 I mean, that's why we create, right. Is to yes. <laughs> hopefully get people excited about, you know, yeah. I, yeah, I very sincerely, I love the game. It's my favorite. It's easily my number one game. Um, oh, here, here's, I can't say more. I can't say more specific, but I can tease for a tease, which I can ooh. say, um, look for more information soon. Like I'm talking with, greater than games and i'm hoping uh that we'll be able to like basically we're hashing out what we can say publicly uh or i'm hashing out what i can say publicly and so keep on the lookout soon (laughs) 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 which is not like i i realized it's like super vague like you know vaguey vague post um but uh uh you know it's 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 be on the lookout for more information over the course of spring there we go that's more concrete very nice. I like that. That it's like when Marvel does the whole like coming May fifth, the teaser to Spider. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, here's I'm a so teaser sorry. for a teaser for a trailer. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I feel bad doing that, but like that's what I got right now. Sorry. No, I love it. Well, and that gives uh, yeah gives me something to look forward to. I'm really excited. I'm also I don't have the promo pack, so I'm really stoked to get Feather and Flame because of course I was you know, going through eBay and looking at stuff. And I was like, yeah, I could print it out. And like, cause there's prints and play, you know, yeah. like files out there, but I'm just like, nah, I want the board. I want it, you know? And yeah, so I'm glad, I'm glad to hear that too. And, uh, Oh, very exciting. See, that's a good tease though. Even if it's yeah. like, people are going to love that. So, uh, thank you. Uh, let's go outside of board games. What do you, uh, and outside of gaming in general, we've talked about a lot of different gaming. Are there more things, more hobbies you have? I have way more hobbies than I have that I enjoy pursuing than I have time for. <laughs> uh, I, I, I did a uh, uh, an interview with Dragon's Demise. It's a video interview on YouTube. If you look for Jenga interview, Eric Royce, where I go into like all the hobbies I've done over the last ten years or fifteen years, and uh, even then, I can't remember all of them, but. Yes, I like a lot of things. Um, as a random sampling of things I have enjoyed doing and might be doing, like I may not be doing them now due to life circumstances, but I'd enjoy getting back to them. Making jam. I enjoy, uh, it's it's one of the forms of food creation, which I enjoy because I can enjoy it in the moment. And I get these like little tidy packages of canned jam, which I can like then enjoy six months from now. I enjoy playing Dance Dance Revolution. I like rock climbing, though I haven't been rock climbing in quite some time. Uh, but I'm looking forward to taking my kids at some point. I uh, touch on that real quick because I used to be a huge rock climber. Do you are you like do you like the climbing? Do you like bouldering? What like what do you prefer? I lean more climbing than bouldering. Uh, I always run into trouble because what I find really interesting. Well, I like lots of things about rock climbing. I like the kinesthetics of it, but the thing which always sort of snipes me is that I'll be making an ascent. 
And what I really like to do is think about it and puzzle it out and be like, oh, well, I could just like, you know, power my way up, but it, it would be much more elegant if I like I go there, then handhold there. Oh, great. And then I can hang left there and I can go up here. Um, and all the time I'm thinking of this, I'm on the face and I'm like, my, you know, I'm slowly draining my endurance bar. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, then I get to the point where like, I need all of that elegance because I'm totally, you know, my arms are totally pumped. I'm just like, oh, okay, I have no strength left, so I, I better have come up with something good here. Um, <laughs> you know, and it would have just been more efficient to just like, you know, scramble up because like, I'm pretty tall, like I'm 6'2", 6 6'3". 6 so there's a lot of times where, you know, marked courses will, will you know, the way I think of it is like, Oftentimes, a 5.8 or a 5.9 will be a 5.8 or a 5.9 for me. But every now and then, it will be a 5.6 because I can just be like, reach, gotcha, and just like bypass something. Oh, you yeah. Know? yeah so, I'm 6.2, so I have this. Oh, yeah, yeah. I've experienced that where I see somebody climbing and I'm like, why'd they do it this way? Why didn't they just go here? And I'm like, oh, I'm tall, right. Yes, yes. <laughs> every now and then, oh, there was this one, it was like 20 or 30 years ago, but there was this one rooted gym out in Franklin, which was fantastic because it was one of the, it was a great route because it was harder for me because I was tall. Um, partly because the handholds they needed were such that they were all just below my center of gravity oh. instead of just above. And partly because it was on this sort of inside corner and in a way where I needed to get my knee up and because my legs are long, I couldn't get them up. And so every time I did the course, I would just be laughing out loud at how awkward I felt. And, you know, normally my friends who were climbing with me, like one of my friends who was climbing with me was like five foot two. And she, you know, we'd be doing other courses and she'd be like, ah, yeah, you and your long arms. And then we'd be do this one and I'd be going up and I'd be the like incredibly awkward, constrained one. And she'd just swarm up it without any problem. It was yeah. fantastic. That is funny. And as you say that, I can vaguely remember times when it was like I had to like put my hand lower in a weird place because it was just like it made it awkward to climb. Yep. So, yeah, yep. that's something I never thought about, but it happens. There's the advantages and disadvantages. Yes. So as you can tell by my mention of like 5.7 through 5.9, I am not a hardcore climber. I am not amazingly good at it, uh, but I enjoy the heck out of it. Yeah, I, that's same here. I Yeah. I loved bouldering because of that whole planning thing of like you try something and then you you think about how you're going to do it, try it, you fall yep. to the ground, you get back up, you try it again and and yep. just can repeat that like technical aspect. But but yeah. I also, you know, I'm also afraid of heights, so <laughs> I don't know why I love climbing so much. <laughs> it just speaks to how much you love it. Yeah, exactly. All right. So other hobbies. Oh, other hobbies. Uh, let's see. I don't think I'm going to go back to taiko drumming, but it was a lot of fun while I did it. Oh. Um, that was really neat. Uh, I've done a couple different sorts of martial arts. The most recent was Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, which I'd like to get back to. But between some... Before the pandemic, I had to stop for a bit because of some injuries, not actually related to Jiu-Jitsu, as it turned out, but uh, uh, other things which were, were going on in my body, which meant that I had to stop. And then the pandemic happened and like, you know, grappling with people just didn't seem like a good plan yeah absolutely i agree <laughs> i enjoy writing and would you know like to do more of that some year um that's that's a thing that would be fun uh i would like i've done a bit of uh, musical composition i'd like to get back to that and uh, like i played piano growing up not a huge amount like i had like five or six years of it like enough to be 
competent but not good, I guess would be the best way to put it. Um, part of it was that I was, I was a kid and I didn't really get, like, you know, like when a computer plays music, if you give a, it will always play it exactly the same every time. And right. If you like, and if you put in like a series of MIDI notes and then you get this kind of, uh, you know, bleepy, you know, do, 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 do. like when I was a kid, somehow or other, that's how I like, I'm like, the music is on the page and you play it exactly as it says. So it will come up the same every time and didn't really cue into the fact that just like spoken words can be read with rhythm and passion and emphasis that you can do the same thing with played music. And I don't know why I didn't cue into this. I have conscious memories of my piano teacher telling me this and talking to me about it, but it just bounced off of me. I don't know. Uh, anyhow, I've gotten, uh, I haven't actually, during the pandemic, I got a little back into piano playing uh, that has waned now that I can actually see people and have a little bit more free time, but it's something I do want to get back to someday. Uh, I'd enjoy be doing more of that. And that plays into also musical composition. Can people hear those anywhere? Oh, geez. No, it's, uh, they might be on, like, I did this 20 years ago. Okay. Uh, you know, it's like, I was messing around in GarageBand and mm. the, the, the musical composition is all like, when I was in college back in the early 90s, what I really wanted was for computers to be good enough at composition, at, at playing music that I could say like, you know, you know, play an F sharp with this duration, you know, using a, a slightly mistuned violin, which at the time you couldn't, like you could barely approximate it with specialized hardware on a sound card. These days it's a snap. Like when oh, GarageBand yeah. first came out, I'm like, this is what I have wanted. Um, <laughs> of course, then I swung back towards the opposite side where I'm like, oh, but now it's playing exactly the same every time. What I really want is a tool which takes something which is deterministic and adds a little bit more of a natural organic feel to it. Since then, I've had the idea of, wait a second, uh, there's a Kickstarter I backed for um, this guy who would make individual tracks, like variations, on a per-backer basis. And now what I really want is a file format for music, like MIDI, or, or uh, I don't think it could be waveform-based. It would have to be instruction-based, where you can specify not just what is played, but variations. You can say, you know, when you hit this point, you know, say, do an accelerando to somewhere between 120 and 130 beats per minute. When you do this, you have a chance of going into this chord structure and a chance of going into this chord structure. Mm. And then that gets recorded as a flag so that later things can key off of it and say, if you're using this chord structure, play this thing. If you're doing this chord structure, do something like this. Um, and so you can have a music file which doesn't play exactly the same way every time. And it could be as simple as just it plays A or B, or it could be as complex as something which results in countless permutations. Uh, so you can say not just, oh, totally check out this track from thus and such, but you can say, check out this track with seed number 947. And oh, listen yeah. to it that way and check out you know, what the guitar does against the drums at three minutes in when you play it with that seed, because that's really interesting. But I don't know of any file formats which will let you, like I can imagine making, you know, I'm a computer programmer, so I could imagine making a program which would let you edit music in this way. But how would you store it? Like you're basically, it's kind of like PDF files where you're not just store, you're storing a program basically rather yeah. than an actual, you know, a waveform. So anyhow, that's another digression. Uh, I like music. Um, I love it. <laughs> yeah, that goes back to like the whole, uh, this interview could go an infinite number of ways, just, you know, like depending on like, well, do we go here or here? And then from there, do we go here or here and here and here, yes. you know, like you've got this infinitely branching tree that we've built and uh, yeah, out there in the multiverse, but you're trying to just contain that multiverse and be able to like 
explore it just by playing the same song over and over again, but it's not the same song. So it may have the same start, but at the end of it all, it's it's a different experience every time. Yeah. And and since I had that idea, I don't know how many years ago, uh, then like neural networks have gotten really good. Um, you know, there's actually neural networks which can like compose stuff in the style of a particular composer yeah. decently well. And so they're like, okay, now what if you take this notion of sort of programmatically branching music and you cross it with a neural network, which then does some of the details of implementation, but in a repeatable way, uh, you could go really interesting places there um, and, and just create spaces of music, which can then be explored and discovered. Yeah. Like, I love it, that. It, the thought process there. Um, so we're getting close to time. So we got Go on to other things real quick, but yep. ridiculous theme. So ridiculous theme. We both come up with an idea for a board game that we think would be uh, ridiculous. It, it doesn't have to be like that's a dumb idea, you know, like it, it fun and playful. Okay, uh, let's see. You are sentient parade floats attempting to reach a particular destination to avoid a disaster, but you can only move by puncturing holes in yourself, and then you kind of blow in the opposite direction. Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. Is this the best ridiculous theme I've ever had on here? <laughs> this see. is wild. <laughs> was that literally off the top of your head? Yes. Wow. That I was... mean, like, I, not, I thought about it for about five or ten seconds. Like, okay. while you were talking, while you're doing the intro to, like, okay, ridiculous. As soon as you said the word ridiculous, I started thinking of ridiculous. Wow. So. I'm uh, I'm blown away by this. <laughs> and you'd be blown away if you played it. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> let's, see. Uh, let's see if we can go for another one. Um, oh, oh, that could be a neat one. Uh, a game where all of you are creatures made out of water or fluid in some fashion. So as you're competing, when you clash with another player, you also end up sort of exchanging parts of yourself. Oh, yeah. That you could take that in a... In a in a totally ridiculous direction by being made of ridiculous fluids. Like, you know, one person is like Chardonnay and another person is like, you know, the tears of the innocent. Uh, <laughs> uh, and, the, you know, uh, and then another person is like, I don't you know, like uh, uh, rancid vinegar or something. I don't know. Like, uh, that's, but you could probably also take it in an extremely artsy direction. Oh my could goodness. Be cool. Board games can be art. Yeah, absolutely. Um, let's see. Uh, I love, I'm like, floored right now because these are really fun ideas <laughs> and normally i can contribute an idea or two but i'm like totally blanking well here give me give me a seat give me give me a give, give me a give me a start point and then i'll jump okay uh let's say diary writing diary so, writing diary, or diaries okay. or exploring a diary hmm. exploring a diary okay um so maybe a game oh hmm. this could be solo i'm not sure but I'm thinking diary is now I'm thinking diary, which is hungry. And you need to, you need to, you need to like write, you, it starts off, this might be a better story than a game, but like a diary, which is hungry. And first you need to fill it with writing. But then as you continue to write things, it starts wanting you to like, you've written about, I don't know, like a, uh, a toy you have. Uh, and now it wants to taste that toy. Oh, um, or, or you've written, written a friend about friends and it wants to taste what is friendship like, which at first seems benign, but then it wants to actually start tasting either your literal friend uh, by chewing on them or tasting the friendship like it's eating the friend, the bonds you have with another person. 
And so you're trying to simultaneously satiate the diary so that it doesn't eat you while writing it in a direction which will either maybe make it less evil or let you escape or give you enough, give you the resources you need to do something which like exercises it or something like that. Oh my goodness. Which of those appeals most? Like which direction should we go from there? Yeah. I mean, I like that idea of trying to escape, right? Like it's like you've got to creatively like write your way out of this diet bond. Yeah. So like maybe every, if we're doing it as a board game, then maybe everything which you enter into the diary uh, opens up some avenues and closes off others. Oh, yeah. And so you need to, and so maybe the the competition, ooh, if it's a limited uh, limited communication co-op, maybe, like you, it's your friends and you're handing the diary off between you or something. Um, and so everything you write in the diary, like, opens some things and closes others, but you can't coordinate as well as you'd like so that you end up uh and if you um and if you write things which are inconsistent like if you just focus on opening things up then the diary gets mad because you're you're clearly lying to it (laughs) yeah so that's good yeah okay yeah this could be that is a fun idea yeah like with infinite possibilities of of conflict and uh yeah yeah fun oh that was great that was excellent ridiculous theme uh, I love how dark you went too. Like when you started talking about the diary thing, I thought like, oh, maybe it's like you just have to like make sure that you're providing enough like of a diverse experience for the diary to have. Uh, but, mm-hmm. but no, it was like, no, it wants to like feed on your experiences <laughs> and like. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. You, you, yeah, when you said something in the way you presented it just inspired that. I'm not nice. sure why. I love it. <laughs> um do you have other games you're working on that you can tease or no? I have a zillion games in early stage prototyping. But when I became a parent, Spirit Island and For Science were the two furthest along designs I had. So I focused on them because I had very, very limited time. Right. Uh, and they both got picked up and they've both been published. Um, and Spirit Island, wonderfully, has done extremely well and been good enough to, to, uh, to want expansions. But that means that like Spirit Island expansions have consumed most of my bandwidth, not all of it. Like every now and then I'll find the time to dabble with stuff uh, and, you know, try maybe doing a little bit of co-designing with somebody or do some other things. None of them have gotten anywhere substantive. None of them are even to the stage where I'd even think about pitching them to a publisher, let alone signed and going to come out anytime soon. Um, my, My guess is that, you know, at some point in the unknown future, when I'm able to spend more time on it, that I'll be able to come out with a lot more different games. And then maybe I can come and pitch all the different games that, because I have like, uh, you know, this is a podcast, but you, you can see, I have this, this, this cabinet with glass. All those are prototypes. Like those are all different prototypes. Oh, wow. Uh, that is awesome. And there's many others besides, and I have a file which has, I don't know, north of a hundred different ideas. Um, some of them are like things where I look at it and I'm like, eh, no, that's probably not a good idea. Like I came up with it, but not such, but others, like I come up with ideas way faster than I can work on them. Oh yeah. So it's, uh, uh, I have so many games I'd like to design and develop, but only so many hours in the day. And I also do want to do other things with my life too, because there's joy to be found in board games, but there's also joy to be found in other things. Uh, well go ahead and plug your stuff. Yeah. So, uh, the, there's Spirit Island, which I'm guessing your listeners know about. Uh, there's For Science, which should become 
uh, available at least briefly sometime in the next month or three. After that, uh, you'll need to uh, contact Gray Fox Games and, uh, and say, I am interested in For Science. If you ever choose to do a reprint, that will be super spiffy. Please let me know. Um, you can go to my website at rericroyce.com. That's R-E-R-I-C-R-E-U-S-S.com, which I don't update it super frequently with news or anything, but it like has links to all my games. And it also has a link to a mailing list I maintain, which is fairly low bandwidth. You can sign up to be notified for, you know, like up to four different categories, which are like new game releases, playtesting opportunities. Uh, you know, I've been on a thing, you know, I'll send out an email about this podcast, for instance. Um, and, uh, you know, that kind of stuff. Uh, so there's a link to that if you want to be notified for thing X or Y, which I might happen to do. Uh, I'm on Twitter at our Eric Royce, although as previously mentioned, I'm kind of intermittent on there. And uh, that's about it for the moment. Just wanted to say thank you for having me on. It's been really fun. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you, Eric, for coming on. That was a lot of fun getting to chat with you, getting to know you. And you forgot to talk about, so I'll mention it now, but there is a a digital edition of Spirit Island, which they are doing the public beta for the multiplayer on Steam. I think there's also like a mobile version as well. So go and check it out there. If you enjoy the show, please share it with your friends, uh, write a review or rate it on Apple Podcasts. That helps it get seen more. And just thank you for listening. I, I appreciate it. You can interact with me on Twitter at RildNerd. Or email me, the board game community show at gmail.com. I'm always happy to interact with fellow gamers out there. We all have fun out here in this community, and, and I am grateful to be a part of it. It's been a really cool experience. If you are interested in other projects I am in, then you can check out the uh the Bunkers and Badasses Tabletop RPG Actual Play Podcast Friend and Foe Adventure Co. I have a lot of fun BMing that. That means Bunker Master. Bunker Mastering, I guess, since I said Ying at the end of that. And it's a lot of fun. It's rowdy. It's it's wild. It's a lot more explicit. So if that ain't your cup of tea, don't bother trying it. And no offense shall be taken. The other day I got to play Alien, The Fate of the Nostromo with Phil and Mark from Organized Fun. So you can go and listen to us chat about our experience. It's one of my favorite podcasts, Organized Fun. Go check it out, Organized with an S. It's I love their format. They throw in clips of gameplay at relevant parts when we're talking about it. And it's a cool review podcast. You can go check it out, hear me on it. And you'll fall in love with the podcast and want to go and listen to all their back catalog, which is wonderful. I've been a little bit sick, so there is a chance that I might take next week off and not do an episode. Or maybe I'll throw together something really short and small. Um, But then I will be back with an awesome guest after that. So thank you again. Thank you for joining me. You're all awesome. And remember, until next week, keep nerding out when my dad was teaching me to play chess uh, early on he let me lose all the time or sorry he let me win all the time uh and he, he would he would he would throw the games and at one point he thought i should make this a little harder for him so he played a little harder and a little harder and a little harder and he discovered he still couldn't beat me <laughs>
and I didn't find out about that until after the fact. Uh, but he was so patient with me the whole time. I, I, I loved it. And I sometimes hear people say like, I'll never let my kids, you know, win a board game. I'll never throw it. And I, I've had a chance to play games with lots of kids now. And I can say with a fair degree of certainty that for some kids that'll work and for other kids, it just won't. Uh, some kids uh, thrive on, on challenge and defiance and other kids thrive on nurturing and encouragement. And like, I don't know how things would have gone if my dad hadn't been so encouraging and just played game after game of chess with me. That was fantastic. Thanks, Dad. Thank you.